0: morning. If I'm a little teary-eyed, it's because of that song. Um, Yeah, it means a lot to me. We would would sing that and still do every year, the doxology, Um, every year at every holiday. We sing that in my family. Um, But I'm reminded of the booming voice, but not just booming, it was gentle, The, the booming and gentle voice of my grandfather who who is no longer with us, but um, he used to sing that all the time and lead us in it. And it just, today, singing that song was just a reminder of God's good, gracious, and wonderful mercies on us each and every day. Um, So I'm not actually nervous, I'm just crying. (laughs) Would you guys please open up the word this morning with me? We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew Uh, looking at chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And uh, if you're using a pew Bible, it'll be on uh, page 814. While you're turning there, uh, when I was in middle school and high school, I loved to stay up at my church all the time and serve. You could find me before and after every event, setting up and tearing down, and I guarantee you I could carry more uh, more church chairs than anybody else. I was the strongest, I promise you that. And everyone noticed, okay? There was one point that I even served on our youth group worship team as a vocalist. I don't know why they let me join. Uh, I can only imagine how bad I sounded. They must have just felt really bad for me. I frequently volunteered in children's programs and classes, offered to lead prayer And various other things, you get the picture, none of which is really bad at all. They're good things, I'm trying to serve. But the more and more I volunteered and the more I served, the better I thought I was than anybody else. The attitude and perception of myself dictated my relationships and how I interacted with those around me. You see, in my head, nobody was as good as me. Nobody served like me. Nobody prayed like me. Nobody was as righteous as me. I did it all. I was the golden boy. This is truly how I viewed myself at times during this season. I may not have verbalized it. I may not have actually said things like that. But in my mind and in my heart, that's probably how I truly felt. This attitude of thinking That we are better or more righteous than others is what our text today warns us about. See, I was imitating the attitude of a Pharisee instead of imitating the mercy of Christ. Would you read with me in Matthew 9 today? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician But those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For ease of following along today, I've dissected this into a few parts, okay? First, we have the calling of Matthew in verse 9 through 10. Then we have the scoffing of the Pharisees in verse 11. And then we have a two-part response from Jesus in verses 12 and 13. To set the scene, Matthew begins chapter 9 by telling us that Jesus had entered his own city, that is Capernaum. And before coming back to Capernaum, he displayed his authority over sickness, demonic forces, and over his creation in the calming of the storm. And as we learned last week, Christ also has the authority in the forgiveness of sins as shown in the healing of the paralytic. This was blasphemy in the eyes of many who believed that only God could forgive sins. So Jesus here, he was claiming authority that only God could claim, and it was ruffling some feathers, to say the least. But now he has passed on, and he sees Matthew in the tax collector's booth. And Matthew is the same man that is referenced in both Mark 2.14 and Luke 5.27. Although in those places, you'll see that his name is called Levi. There are many plausible reasons as to why the names might be different. He could have been a descendant of the Levites. He could have had two names from birth, Matthew Levi. He also could have changed his name upon conversion. But whatever the case may be, and we can talk about that, Discussing that and trying to figure out his name is not going to help us really know who Matthew is. So who is Matthew? He's a traitor. He's a traitor in the eyes of the Jews. Having been born and raised a Jew, he's involved himself with and cooperated alongside the Romans who occupied Palestine at the time. Tax collectors also had a reputation for taking more than what was actually required, right? And that in itself brought further economic oppression upon the people. And in this particular time and culture, the phrase tax collectors and sinners wasn't an abnormal one to hear. Tax collectors were regarded as scum, the worst of the worst. So bottom line, if you were a Jew, you hated the likes of Matthew. So this may lead one to ask this. Why would Jesus call Matthew? I mean, he had called fishermen already before uh, we had seen that. And while fishermen weren't exactly at the top of society's most beloved list, right, at least they weren't automatically morally and religiously suspect. Matthew and his fellow tax collectors were. And based on what we've seen so far through this gospel, we really shouldn't be surprised at what God is doing here. He's turning society upside down. I I, I love what R.T. France says about this. This is so good. He says, For Jesus to call such a man to follow him was a daring breach of etiquette, a calculated snub to conventional ideas of respectability, which ordinary people, no less than Pharisees, might be expected to balk at. You see, by calling Matthew to be a disciple of his and sharing a meal with other tax collectors and sinners or society's undesirables, however you want to say that, Jesus is putting his reputation as rabbi and teacher at stake. Mark and Luke's Gospels even go as far as saying that it was in Matthew's own house, which would have been viewed as unclean. And that's where they were dining together. In the ancient world, sharing a meal with someone was a sign of identification. And this this was scandalous, at the very least, in the eyes of the Jews. But what about Matthew? He, He responded so quickly to the call of Christ. Why would he do that? What caused him to trust a man who we can assume he had never actually met? By now, we can assume, though, that Jesus' reputation is talked about all over, right? He's, he's been uh, doing a bunch of works. He, he, his teachings are probably going throughout the area. People have probably heard of him. He was no, well known by many. So we might assume that Matthew had already heard and maybe even seen some of Christ's teachings and works. It says that he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. This simple call from Christ is echoed throughout the Gospels, though. Earlier in Matthew 4, Jesus calls Peter and Andrew by saying, follow me. And then right after, calling James and John as well. And what's the response of each of them? They immediately left with him. They didn't stop to ponder. They didn't question. They immediately dropped what they were doing to follow Christ. And Matthew did the same. We'll come back to this, okay? But let's look deeper into what transpires next. On the surface, the question from the Pharisees in verse 11 could be seen as innocent. As if they truly want to understand what Jesus is doing. Eating here at this table and fellowshipping with impure people, it could be seen as innocent. It could be like, "Hey, uh, Peter, does does your teacher not know the, what he's doing here? Like, you might want to help. You might want to help a brother out here. He might not know what he's actually doing. Does he not understand the shame that he's bringing on himself by eating with such an unclean group of people? It could seem innocent, but..." Based on what we've seen so far, that's not what's happening here. No, just eight verses previous to this moment, these Pharisees were calling Jesus a blasphemer. And seven verses previous, Jesus knew their thoughts and said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus had also claimed to have authority to forgive sins and to heal. You see, their religious rules and practices were being broken before their eyes in the work of Jesus. Instead, this question from the Pharisees, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It inherits a sort of scoffing and sarcastic tone. It can be understood, it can be understood more like this. What kind of teacher would conduct himself in this way? Eating with the likes of these people, that's an abomination Additionally, this question was intended to discredit Christ. And it shows cowardice. As they're not asking it directly to Jesus, they're asking it to his disciples. And in Matthew 9, verse 3, they were talking about him amongst themselves. Here they do it to his disciples, but they dare not in this moment say it to his face. It should also be noted that the term sinners here could also be meant to include those more common individuals who do not partake in the everyday rituals or share in the same principles as the Pharisees. So this line of questioning from the Pharisees really shows us the mindset of them wanting to look down their noses at Christ and the people with whom he was surrounding himself with. To understand this mindset more, in Luke chapter 18, Verse 9 through 14, Jesus gives uh, gives the parable of a prayer from a Pharisee and a tax collector. I want to read that for you. Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. With their minds baffled that a rabbi would defile himself in such a way as to eat with the likes of these individuals, they chose here to scoff and undermine the work of Christ as he fellowships with the lowly. Yet Jesus still responds despite never being spoken to directly. And his response is stunning, at the very least. Christ says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And there's a few things we can take away from this response that Christ gives. We can see once again that Jesus is not, or excuse me, we can see once again that Jesus is connecting not only that he has authority to heal those who are sick, but also the authority to heal the sinner. If you have a toothache, you're going to go to the dentist because they are a specialist of teeth. If you have a heart issue, you're going to go see a a cardiologist because they are specialists of the heart. If you need new contacts or glasses, you're going to go see an optometrist. They're a specialist of the eyes. And if you're feeling unwell, you might go visit your doctor who is a specialist in practicing medicine. Each of these are specialists of their own kind. And also, there are numerous specialists in each of these fields. You can can go on Google and search for a cardiologist. You're going to find 20 of them in a 20-mile radius, probably more, okay? But here in this statement, Christ is proclaiming that he is the specialist in dealing with sin. And I want to make sure you heard me correctly. He is the specialist. Specialist, the only specialist in dealing with sin. And there's no other way to defeat it except through him. Those that are sinful need mercy, forgiveness, and restoration. And it is only through him that they can find that. Um, when I first read this passage, I had brought some ideas to the text that I had believed to be true. And we all do that sometimes. But as I was developing this and writing it all out, um, there were some wrong ideas that I had placed on here. And I praise the Lord because he corrected my understanding of some of this passage. You see, one question I had when looking at this was, what does this table of tax collectors think? I thought that these people sitting here at the table with Jesus must have been intrigued by him so intrigued that they must have flocked around the table and gladly received him, that they were the ones pursuing after him. But in truth, that is the exact opposite of what we are seeing here. It was not the people. It was not the tax collectors. It was not those there at the table that initiated this meeting. It's Jesus. It was by his calling of Matthew by his going to Matthew's house. It's by him sitting at the table and conversing with them them, that he is breaking all these boundaries and meeting with the tax collectors and sinners where they were at. Just as a doctor would take care of the sick, whether the sick desired or not, just as a doctor would take care of the sick, the true healer, had come to this table because they were sick. There's an additional point I'd like to make. If you go to another person's house and sit down for a home-cooked meal, it's not abnormal for the discussion to get deeply personal. During those times is when you can usually find out more about one another, and really get to know someone, as opposed to just having small talk in a public setting, right? This response from Jesus indicates that the conversation that was happening among them at the table was one of eternal value. And in this moment, status, wealth, power, knowledge, anything else that had defined their lives suddenly did not matter and this statement is also radical because it calls the Pharisees out. With their lives being devoted to strict observance of both traditional and written laws, the minds of Pharisees commonly showed that they felt far superior and more righteous than anyone else. They believed themselves to be healthy because of all their works. They showed the outward appearance Of religious zeal, but neglected to show any mercy. So they weren't as healthy as they thought. In using this illustration, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, telling them that they are blind to their own sickness as well. The second part of Christ's response, though, is where the rubber meets the road. It's the action that he is calling the Pharisees to. Let's look at the book of Hosea, chapter 6. If you would turn with me there. Um, Hosea, chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verse 4 through 6. It's on page 754 if you're using a pew Bible. As you're turning there, these words of Hosea that we're about to read, they bring clarity to the statement that Christ is making here in Matthew 9. It brings clarity when Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees surely would have knowledge of these words. They would know these words. So when Christ commands the Pharisees to go and learn, I believe it does two things. One, I think he's calling them to a genuine effort to understand the meaning but also, too, it's a rebuke right to their faces. By saying this, Jesus essentially has unveiled that despite the Pharisees' vast knowledge of the Scriptures, they clearly did not understand their purpose. Let's read Hosea here to understand this purpose. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have honed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In reading this, we see that God is clearly frustrated by Israel and Judah's lack of pursuing him, and he rebukes them for their unsteady love that's fading more and more each day. By his word of judgment, he exposes them like a light because they do not exhibit steadfast love. Israel and Judah, they were just going through the motions of their rituals, but they had lost their center, and they didn't actually know the God of whom they gave sacrifices to. Hosea uses the Hebrew word hesed, which is translated various ways in our Bibles, such as kindness, steadfast love, and mercy. In Exodus 34, 6, Hesed is used to show the Lord's character. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in Hesed, or steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 23, verse 6 Surely goodness and Hesed, or mercy, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love Hesed, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord is a God of mercy and steadfast love who provides help for the helpless. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks of the Father being merciful and being a faithful provider. He says that He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So what does this mean? This means that we are to imitate our Father's mercy. The way we do this is not simply by loving those who love us back. The world can do that. The world shows that kind of love, but we do it by loving those who cannot love us back. And do you see here how this would apply to the Pharisees? Christ's words cut deep. They cut deep to the heart of the Pharisees. In the response of Christ, it's like he's saying, you do not know the God of whom you think you serve. Your zeal to showcase your righteousness to all has made the hesed that you ought to have fickle and fading. You and all your proclaimed righteousness, you're not any different than these tax collectors and sinners whom you choose not to associate with. You do not showcase the true heart of God. In his final words, Jesus says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And these final words here in this this passage, this statement doesn't just look, doesn't just tie into what he previously said about those who are well, not needing a physician, but the sick do. And it also cannot just mean that he viewed the Pharisees as righteous people who weren't in need of him, or that their obedience to the laws was perfectly acceptable on its own. No, that's that's not that's not it. It it ultimately it sums up everything he said and points to the purpose of his earthly mission by saying, "For I came." He's pointing to his existence from heaven in which he came to earth as Emmanuel, God with us. In this mission of Christ, it was an ultimate one of grace and a pursuit of sinners. So it seems that he's taking the Pharisees' perception of themselves and pointing out that if they do not see themselves in the light of his mission, that is, of grace and mercy towards sinners, then they have failed to grasp his purpose and are excluded from the blessings of the kingdom of God. But those that are like Matthew, who respond to the call of Christ, will be included. There's a, it's, it, there's a reminder here of his Sermon on the Mount Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, those whom evil has falsely been spoken of. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those like Matthew who respond to the call of Christ will be included. There's a couple things I think this passage is doing that we should walk away with. Quick side note here. And I want to thank my brother Dustin for this. He pointed this out to me. Quick side note. There's a way that this text gets misinterpreted in some circles. And let me just say that this is not a text saying that it's okay to sin because Jesus gets you and will meet you where you are, thus requiring no real change, no need for repentance, and doesn't require the sanctifying work of Christ. That is false. That is wrong. I just want to lay that kind of interpretation out here, saying that it is false. But here's what I do think this passage is doing. First, if you are not in Christ... This passage acts as a call for you to follow Jesus. You may find yourself to be like Matthew. You may have heard of Jesus. You may have heard of his his works before. You may have friends and family who have responded to his call or even follow him. Or you may have never heard of Jesus. You may have never heard his gospel. And this message is brand new. Either way, the call is there. The call is there for you to respond to him. Matthew and his lot of tax collectors and sinners, though they were looked down upon the Jews, they were ultimately elevated. They were ultimately elevated by the work and mission of Christ. You might feel like an outcast, you might feel like society's undesirables, but you are the reason Christ came. If you talk to anybody in this room, we could all tell you those that do believe in Christ are not any different and are not any better than you. The gospel of Jesus says that we have all sinned and are separated from him. And because of that sin, we all deserve an eternal death. We can see that in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 6. You also heard a lot about righteousness today. Jesus is the only true righteous one, and it is by his righteous death for the unrighteous that we are brought back to God through faith in his work. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 3 and Romans chapter 10. This gospel is one of grace and mercy, and it is a beautiful picture of, of Christ's calling and adopting sinners who are hungry and thirsty for true righteousness, unlike the self-satisfied. If you have ever been treated by a confessing Christ follower as if you are an outcast, if you've heard or experienced anything other than mercy and grace from a Christian for that, I am sorry. Because we deal with the same sin. We deal with the same temptation. We deal with the same problems as you. But Jesus has rescued us from that sin and is daily working that sin out of our hearts. And until he's finished that work, I'd ask for you to have patience with us. But I implore you, my friend, drop everything. Drop everything you're doing and seek after him. Through the life of Jesus here on earth, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection and defeat of sin, he has made a way for you to experience life more fully and eternally. Second, if you are in Christ, then this passage acts as a warning to humble ourselves before the throne of Jesus and it reminds us to imitate him. I'd remind and encourage you to go read Acts 11 when Peter is shown by God in a vision that this gospel is not just for one nation or one culture, but it's for all nations and all cultures. All nations, all cultures. That includes tax collectors and sinners. That includes society's undesirables. Brothers and sisters, may this passage convict us of how we treat God's image bearers. And we must keep watch from exercising a superficial religion. We can read texts like this and we can villainize the Pharisees all that we want, but really it should convict us and show us how we have imitated them. Whether it's in our day-to-day conversations at work, the comment section of social media. It's easy to take up a just cause with mere words and with no action or pursuit of the other party. You see, our culture represents a new version of the Pharisees. If you don't vote the way that we do, if you don't take up our cause, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you'll be canceled. You can't have a seat at our table. It is the superior attitude over others saying that they don't measure up. But Jesus comes in. Jesus comes in and says, none of you measure up. None of you measure up. But I want to eat with you. We would do well to get to know and to engage with others more intimately. We can look at Christ for how to do this. Jesus' engagement with sinners was both active and it was persistent. As followers of Christ, we should imitate such engagement. His engagement was active in the sense that it never ceased, and it was persistent in seeking after the lost, no matter the cost to his reputation or ultimately his life. We might do well occasionally in actively pursuing outsiders through various social, spiritual, or evangelistic outreaches to the LGBTQ community, to prostitutes, victims of human trafficking, homeless, orphans, addicts, the list can go on. Yet for some of us, though, we neglect to connect with them more persistently. Christ gave us the example of sharing a meal as being a means for having an intimate conversation of the heart and mind. And we would do well to open our tables as well. It lends opportunity to reach those that are sick. But it doesn't have to stop at just sharing a meal. We can also engage in fostering and adoption of the orphans who need a home. It can be as simple as meeting with someone over a cup of coffee. Maybe it means making yourself accessible to victims who might need legal or counseling resources. Maybe it means serving in the Pregnancy Help Center here in Fort Worth. As much as this passage is a warning to us, it is a calling to seek those that are in need. There are numerous ways in which we can be persistent in serving outsiders. But here's something to think about. If all we're doing is throwing money at various outreaches and calling ourselves a good Christian while avoiding getting our hands dirty, that's no different than what the Pharisees were doing just going to church on Sunday morning, giving our tithes, posting a scripture verse on social media, going to care group or avoiding curse words, none of this makes us any more righteous than the next. If we feel like we've been good Christians, if we show off our good deeds and our righteousness to the world, then we are blinded to our own sickness as well. Those deeds, those are the sacrifices he's talking about. And our love is not steadfast. It fades like the morning clouds and dew. Hear me out. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. But if we do all these sacrifices without hesit, if we do it without mercy and steadfast love, if we do so without caring for the poor, without seeking society's outcasts, Whatever, then we ourselves are nothing more than an empty shell, and we will be practicing a religion that doesn't portray the true character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Christ is talking about in his response. And if that's the case, then we too have missed the point and ultimately have missed the heart of God, and the mission of Christ. I don't want to leave you feeling bashed, but I do want to exhort you to imitate Christ. Follow after Him. May we be reminded that He is calling us to imitate Him. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 tells us what this looks like. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children how do we do that? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Brothers and sisters, may we as a body, may we as a body be aware not to imitate the ways of Pharisees, but instead give ourselves up for Christ. Christ imitating him who first gave himself up for us.